Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. We're doing a series of interviews regarding climate change and mental health, and we're doing it with the Climate Psychiatry Alliance. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. Gary Belkin is a psychiatrist in New York City, and he has worked for years in different areas of public health. He is currently the visiting professor at the Harvard School of Public Health, and he is the founder of an organization called A Billion Minds Institute. One of the things that he is focusing on now is the relationship between the effects of climate change and mental health. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here and talk to you. Thank you, sir. Let's begin with an overview. How and what moved you to becoming a psychiatrist, to being the former Deputy Health Commissioner of New York City, and now to the founder of the Billion Minds Institute? Give us an overview, if you could, sir. Psychiatry seemed to be the most important part of medicine to me, most interesting part of medicine, most applied part of medicine to what related to why I went into medicine in the first place. It just seems such powerful connection between things we deeply care about, health, well-being and the progressive social things I cared about, equity, justice, those things met in public health. How we built society to be humane uh, is reflected in our commitments to and our successes in achieving health for all. And so that was always a motivator of me to be in medicine. Psychiatry just seemed the closest field within medicine that really got at that stuff. It really was closest to how people are suffering, how they connect with each other, and how we harness that for good. How did this then evolve into looking at the issues of climate change? We're not generally given much inclinations or pressure or even inducements to think along these lines in medical school or residencies. What brought you to start looking at the climate change issues? It was really an extension of that sense of my way into medicine and psychiatry as, you know, building block for a good society. And so that led me to approach public mental health work in a very participatory, community-driven way. Especially when I was deputy health commissioner in New York City, I applied things that I learned along the way as a psychiatrist, where I mostly kind of unlearned a lot of my psychiatry working in sub-Saharan Africa, working in the Caribbean places were addressing health very differently by seeing the entire community as part of the health system, as part of the people and the places that you really needed to recruit to the work of health. At about that time, a lot of people were thinking, okay, how do we approach mental health that way? And it really mushroomed into a now more established field of global mental health and a real deep evidence base of what's been called cash sharing, this idea that A lot of the skills that we always thought needed specialists for can be done by all sorts of people. That became especially compelling in the Global South in HIV work, that a lot of the steps of treatment, care, prevention, promotion could actually be done and even done better by non-clinicians. Some folks at the time, maybe 10, 15 years ago, were starting to think that way, oh, you know, we can do mental health that way. Now there's a deep evidence base for that and a huge range of skills that can be done by non-professionals. So I really started learning and marinating in that and helping create parts of that before I came to the health department. My role at the health department gave me a chance to put that into practice. I convinced folks to do something called Drive NYC, which was New York City-wide cross-agency, to really import this learning from the rest of the world to New York City. We funded like 54 initiatives. For the most part, in some way or the other, was about that, was bringing skills and capacity 
to non-clinical spaces, often partnered by clinicians to help support that. So that's how I really saw mental health as a powerful part of overall population health, but also of community empowerment to do other things that matter to them. With that under my belt and, and learning about what was really possible and thinking that way, at the same time, I personally was feeling like if I'm not working on climate change, I'm wasting my time. I just think, you know, it just swamps all other problems. It makes everything else that holds societies back more pronounced and the environmental pressures are just making it hard to fix all these social fault lines in our society around race, income, other advantages. I was thinking, okay, what can I bring to that huge issue? It occurred to me that nobody was talking about the social side of climate change, that a lot of the discussion, which it needs to be, is on what I sort of call the hardware solution. How do we change our energy sources and grids? How do we change our transportation systems and our manufacturing processes and automobile fleets and, and so forth? And all that is critical. But behind that is huge social, cultural, lifestyle changes that are borne by all of us that require huge behavior change, going to put huge demands on us socio-emotionally, not just to get through and endure the suffering that is increasing around adverse weather events and heat increases and what will even become more prominent, disruptions in vulnerability of food sources and water sources and just the migratory pressures that we're seeing in the world today that are just going to amplify that are already corroding our politics. All of that is going to get 10 times worse. For the wherewithal to drive change and adopt change, let alone endure change, we need a whole socio-emotional revolution, what I call fixing the social climate. There I saw a key, at least part of that, was the kind of community building, community ownership, community practice, and co-creation of ways of maintaining connection, social ties, emotional resilience, that the way I was approaching community mental health was kind of showing a way towards. So that's where I thought I could contribute, was to really elevate this issue of the social climate, to try to give a method to prove concepts of how it would work, and to get policy backing to enable that part of things to really get some real movement and action, which we desperately need. You brought us a very interesting notion about how this is going to be and it's going to require a very significant change in a lot of how people go about life. One of the things that was most instructive for me, and I think it reverberates with what you're saying, is many years ago when I was part of a physician's group dealing with environmental issues, I would come back and talk to my friends and say, this is what we are seeing. And they would say to me, oh, I'm so glad you are doing it. Keep up the good work. I don't have time to do it. I just want to live my life the way I'm living. And I would say, no, that's not what I'm trying to say. Are you finding that same hesitancy or has, from what you're seeing, there been more of an acceptance that this is a very real process and they are going to have to participate in the social change that are necessary to save our planet? Absolutely. The social and emotional changes that they're going to have. And I think we're at a kind of stalled point with climate change. I think that there is a shifted mood in the country that this is a, a priority and, and really a problem. And that's actually a recent shift in polling, although I think there's clear evidence that younger generation, 15 to 25-year-olds polled, even 12 to 25-year-olds polled, endorse this as a daily intrusive society that impairs functioning. They're ahead of the curve in, in seeing this. That opens up a whole question about intergenerational conflict and divide that could really injure our society and the collective work we have to do. 
But even with that heightened awareness is this paralysis about doing something. And a lot of that energy to overcome that paralysis is aimed at the political process and big legislative actions. And that's important. What we can do tomorrow you know, without waiting for a majority in the Senate or whatever is enabling local action to put solutions into place to explode the rate neighborhood off-grid solar powered collectives, to explode the rate of community coalitions that come together around climate adaptation work and not appreciating the necessity, just the bandwidth, a necessity of our civic muscle to do this work. But we can't just say, people, this is a problem, you got to do stuff. We have to make it as easy as hell to do stuff. People asked me, you know, when I was doing this work on mental health, this community approach on mental health in New York City, you know, what do I want to be my, my legacy of that? And I said, it should be, you shouldn't have to find it. You should trip over it. And that's the whole idea of training up the community, seeing the whole community as a resource and owner of skills and solutions. And I feel that way with climate action. People want to do something as easily as just recycle well. And it's hard. You don't trip over opportunities to be part of the solution. That's what I mean by a serious investment in the social climate and the collective power to do stuff and the collective power to help each other to get through this stuff. And we can do that. That's a matter of will, not of method. It's also a matter of them seeing that they have the same problem as those of us who are talking about it. We have to bring the battle to their level. There usually is not a stoplight put up at an intersection until someone is hurt. And then the community goes in front of the city and says, we need to do that. What specifically, and maybe this is a segue into the discussion of the Billion Minds Institute, what people can do other than just showing an interest, which I hope they are by listening to us, to trip over it. Give us some hard guidelines. I've been thinking mostly about what kind of systems of organizing, the answer to your question, are often very localized. A coastal community that's facing tidal flooding is going to have a different to-do list to marshal its people around than a community in the Northwest or in the Central Valley of California. The example I know deepest is trying to do community public health work, mental health work. How do you organize things so that there's opportunity for local problem, um, local aim setting, local problem prioritizing, and partnerings that bring technical assistance and, and other supports to enable grassroots level work to work. Right now, we have a flourishing of grassroots organizations working on various aspects of all of the above, but they are not always aligned. They are not as resourced as they need to be. And they don't really have the, the bandwidth and the capacity to capture the people living in their communities, to kind of marshal them and harness them and organize them and point them in the direction of sort of to-do list as you're describing. We have to build the community ecology that supports those already existing or growing coalitions, hubs of work to be more empowered, more resourced centers of activity so that if, no matter where I'm living, I can trip over a community-based organization that is organizing just what you're describing. What can we do on our city block? What can we do on our neighborhood? What do we need to do in our county? 
every individual doesn't have to figure it out for itself. I think that's the mistake here is that, that the enrollment of individuals has been around very micro behaviors. Should I take a bus instead of a car? And, and all of that is, it's not like it's unimportant because those sorts of adjustments in life are going to be necessary. But it's wholly unfair to think that kind of hyper individual to-do lists are going to get us where we need to be. We need a local to-do list that we can mobilize and energize people around to do. But we need to invest in the civic grassroots infrastructure to lead that. And without getting too complicated, because this can become very complicated very quickly, we also have to take into consideration, and I'm doing this to reflect some of your interest in the issues of poverty, that different communities can or cannot afford these things. Poor people may not be able to move to a different area. Rich people can. This becomes a massive socioeconomic challenge. As you get to the local levels of the specific questions that people need to raise for their own neighborhoods, so to speak, we might be able to get some movement. But do you see that a lot of these organizations or potential organizations, that they need help in learning how to organize? Is that something that your Billion Brains Institute would do, or does it have a different focus? All, all the above, understanding the Earth's climate, understanding what's happening to the Earth's climate, even just that, that kind of concept, that paradigm, the Earth climate, took decades to develop and converged a whole array of physical, Earth, biological sciences. When we're talking about social climate, we need a similar alignment of a whole range of knowledge areas about everything you just said. What are the best ways to mobilize social action? What are the best tools to enable social groups to be frontline implementers, generators of data, testers of change to really drive social innovation? There are whole fields of work that can really lead a path towards that. Then there's the whole socio-emotional side. How do we build nurturing communities? How do we develop emotional resilience to get through this stuff and to maintain the social ties we need to do that collective work? There are a whole bunch of fields that have worked on that. It's really the gamut that we have to bring as social climate science it needs to be able to synthesize what are the key policy needs to get to that place of a functioning social climate? What are the investments we need to make? What are the key interventions that would have the most impact? And they would run that whole range of both really building collective action and really building the underlying socio-emotional strength to do the work and get through the future. It's building a new machinery to help communities do that. And what Billy Minds is part of increasing with other allies is trying to both map what that range of social climate work would look like and to try to prove the concepts. Now, we are behind a lot of actors, particularly in the environmental justice community, that have dove into those questions and really tried to figure that out. I think that they are equal creators and learners and experts on how to do this. And so this is not a relationship where experts are going to dictate what I learned really worked is we had to think of mental health not as a top-down sort of process, but as a horizontal process. And it was really co-created where experts were really partners capacity to build others, be more effective. And I think that analogy holds here in building hubs of climate action that are civic-led and civic-driven, which then gets at your initial question, how do you build in and keep front and center the huge race-driven, economic-driven segregation of harms and threats that people face in terms of climate damage and other environmental damage, pollution, and so forth, is by putting more of the power and solution capacity at the local level. One of the issues that has bantered about in my head 
is that I made the initial miscalculation of assuming that when we were going to think about mental health and climate change, that somehow that was going to become one of the issues when I do psychotherapy. There's barely enough time to do what I have to do now. And what am I going to do if somebody says that they don't have air conditioning or they live near the equivalent of a love canal? And I'm suspecting that there are other issues that are affecting their mental health. Now I'm beginning to see that maybe my focus at this level, at this stage of this process is wrong, that we need to look at more resilience from a community point of view. I'm still confused on this personally. What are your thoughts about this, if my question even makes sense? It, it does make sense. And I think it shows the, the real loss to the mental health field in our increasing distance from the social determinants of mental health. We've just become more almost walled off talking about them more, but functionally, operationally, effectively walled off from, from the social world that is actually the biggest driver. You know, social factors, social determinants are the biggest driver, more than genes, of most mental illness, of the course of recovery of mental illness, um, let alone of the drivers of mental health and emotional health and strength and resilience. And yet the mental health field, in terms of what we do clinically and what we study you know, research-wise, and scientifically, have become, you know, it seems even further and further removed from, from those things. Climate makes those habits no longer acceptable. It's just unacceptable. We will become increasingly irrelevant. Suffering of people and the stability of our social and community fabric if we continue that habit of isolation from the social. I think that is true for everything. Our politics remains elite-driven and not real community-empowered-driven. It will become irrelevant to solving the biggest problems of our times. This is a moment for the mental health field to really step up. Appreciate that it's not only important now to know whether your client lives in a highly polluted area or has access to air conditioning or what they fear and worry about the larger world. It's always affected the course of their recovery or their risk of mental illness and those things. If the climate crisis accelerating environmental collapse, in our face is not enough to wake us up to embrace the social more and find our ways to that. I don't know what will. I, I just feel like we are going to be irrelevant to what humans need from us if we continue to keep that wall up. Fascinating, important, critical. Dr. Belkin, thank you very much. I wish we had more time, but these are issues that we have to at least bring to the table. I appreciate your willingness to talk to us, sir. Great. My pleasure. Thank you for putting attention to all this.